Hi, oboists. Have you ever found it difficult to sort out when and how to find a new oboe or English horn? Oboe Chicago streamlines the process, providing personal and professional consultation and a large selection of lovely instruments. The process feels comfortable and thorough. Selection includes F. Loray of Paris, Howarth of London, Covey Oboes, and Fox Products. For a current listing of Oboe Chicago's selection, please visit www.oboechicago.com. For a credit of $100 toward shipping, mention Double Read Dish when you call or email Shauna. Chemical City Double Reads is a full-service double read shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Read Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH, all caps, no spaces. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at chemicalcityreads.com. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. I've got my coffee, but I promise not to slurp into the microphone or I'll, I'll erase it in post if I do. <laughs> so the last time we talked, I didn't have my tenure tattoo. Now look, bam. It's beautiful. Thank it's you. It's big. Yeah. I wasn't expecting it to be so big, but I love it. It was very, very, very ouchy. <laughs> But now I'm like getting past the the pain and the itchiness and I'm like, ooh, what do I want to get next? So it's like childbirth where it's like really painful in the moment, but then it's over and you're like, oh, I want another one. I have no experience with that. Well, I don't either, but I wondered because my painful thing that I just went through for a nice aesthetic outcome is I painted my cabinets. That's got to be worse than a tattoo. I, I think it is. It was horrible. I had this mm-hmm. like emotional breakdown. So my friend was like, just do it. They'll look so much better. And it'll only take the weekend, like two days. No. I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. <laughs> <laughs> this friend is losing some privileges. <laughs> and so I'm like, okay, I'll do this. It'll look great. I agree. Blah, blah, blah. It, the kitchen was very outdated. I mean, it does look great. It just kept going and going and, and it wasn't ending. And I had some other stuff going on that was like stressing me out that I didn't really have all this time to give to it that I wasn't anticipating. And then I met, I won't get into the details, but suffice it to say, I made a big mistake that set right. me back and was probably going to add a day or two. Oh, no. And I just like freaked out. <laughs> I started crying and like yelling and you know that emoji with the teeth that is just like showing its teeth like (laughs) that was Chris and he was just like there's the hair and I was just like I got the cameras and it was just (laughs) horrible but it was painful it was awful but then we hung those cupboards back up and I was jumping up and down at how beautiful they look and I Maybe thought that's myself, more like childbirth than that. 
I was like, maybe like if we're in another house with an outdated kitchen, I will convince (laughs) myself that it wasn't that bad because the outcome afterwards was so nice. But in the moment, so painting cupboards, tattoos and childbirth, childbirth. You know what it actually reminded me of in the middle of it? I was like, this is like learning the Barrio Sequenza. Like by the time you realize how far in you are, you're in too deep. You've already (laughs) programmed it. You can't turn back now and you just have to keep going even though you hate the experience. (laughs) Oh my God. I love summer updates. Well, yeah. What I thought you were going to say is the last time we talked, we could not yet reveal our big secret announcement that has now been revealed but but we revealed it we did if you follow us on social media you know that we started the double read dish commission consortium can you put in like a like a the price is right song oh now you're like requesting (laughs) (laughs) i'm high maintenance this is not public radio where i've just got a soundboard of little maybe we can get one i think they exist where you can just like push a button and like boing audio we should get one we should try to find that anyway (laughs) we have approached four incredible exciting amazing composers to write music for the oboe and bassoon as an ensemble and two of our amazing composers are writing for oboe bassoon and piano one is writing for oboe and bassoon and one is writing for oboe bassoon and voice and it is going to be such an exciting year of updates of getting to know these composers of being a part of the commission process and approaching this creation of new works as a community so jackie why don't you tell us a little bit more of the deets yeah, this is something I remember it was just after I'd moved to Poland last summer that you and I were texting mm-hmm. about something. God only knows. Who, yeah, who knows? <laughs> but somehow got on the conversation of like collaborating with composers is so cool. Creating new works is so cool, but it's expensive. It's obviously, expensive. Com- composers deserve to get paid for their work obviously. Mm -hmm. And so the traditional response to that has been, let's take this significant fee and divide it by whatever, 10. And every one of those 10 people give 300 bucks. Like usually when I'm approached for a consortium, it's somewhere between two and $500. I don't know if that's your experience. Yeah. Yeah. At least two, usually more. And it's like, sometimes you just don't have that money. Sometimes Mm -hmm. you have it technically, but it's part of like maybe this small chunk of professional development funds that you have to use for all the travel and all of this Mm -hmm. that you have to do. And that consortiums are such a great idea to divide and conquer, but that the entry points were just like not feasible. And Mm -hmm. that commissioning and, and that type of thing can be a really cool thing for an aspiring professional or even a student to get on their resume that is not student oriented, you know, that's like actual professional activity. Mm-hmm. And what if we were able to create an opportunity that had removed the barriers to entry to that process mm-hmm. and divide the pie, say, into like a hundred pieces, mm-hmm. which requires very little of everyone involved. And we thought that was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. But that meant... <laughs> 
Um, this is a little behind the curtain. Double Read Dish is an LLC, and we are an LLC to protect our personal assets. So before, Don't sue us. yeah, well, well now we, you can. Now you can sue us. Basically, if an entity is not an LLC, <laughs> and we were just like the we were the first couple of years, just kind of mom and pop running casually. Yeah, we were just we were we were bacon cupcakes in our kitchens for real and if someone took an issue with what was happening and were to file litigation they could have come for everything that you and i's family personal assets mm -hmm. and llc just basically says there's a difference between us as individuals and us as a company and therefore if someone sues double read dish you get <laughs> three dollars and a bottle of lint <laughs> i don't know Knock yourself anyway, out. Anyway, we encourage you to sue us. It'll only hurt our feelings. Well, you'll lose money on the lawyer, <laughs> honestly. Oh, and side note, this is really good advice for private teachers. You can make yourself an LLC. So you can turn your private teaching business into an actual business. Yes, if you're selling reads. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we got that all in gear, which is probably overdue. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then we had to learn to like draft contracts. That was a really cool process, actually. That was really cool because we collaborated with our composers and they yes. have obviously a lot more experience with that than we do. <laughs> they oh, were yeah. like, by the way, this and that and that. We were like, oh, that's a really good point. Absolutely. We found basically a prototype and then adapted it for our purposes. And then in collaboration with the composers, they were like, this is typical. This is atypical blah, blah, blah. Have you thought of that? What if that happens? And then we took it to a CPA slash tax attorney to confirm yes. that we had done everything right. Because you and I were both like, oh, <laughs> yeah, like uh, come next April, find out that we owe thousands of dollars or that <laughs> we like royally messed up our composer's finances. Like that was not an option. And so we paid this individual $350 an hour. Why were we not CPAs slash Tax lawyers? Attorney. For real. It's like, oh, I don't want to go to law school and become a, an attorney. That's so much work, trial, and this. This person just does taxes. Not just, but like, they're not like, your honor, this person murdered no. this other person. No, there's no out. performance element at all. No, they just have to know the tax code and then they make $350 an hour and I'm shaping cane. <laughs> what is wrong with this picture? Why? I'm shaping cane for free. I am losing money on this cane. So, you know. It reminds me of the Barrio Sequenza. Yeah, no kidding. Life. <laughs> la, la, la. <laughs> Students, you're doing great. You're on a path to fulfillment and financial success. Don't listen to us. We're just bitter old ladies. <laughs> we're old and crusty. Don't worry. Anyway, we're street legal now. We are legal. FDA approved. Yes, we are good to go. But the coolest part is we are finally able to launch and you all showed up for us. Guess how many of you signed up already? And it has been one week? 53. It's actually over 53. Over 53 now? We're at 56. That is so killer. 
I know we cannot appreciate everyone enough. It's it's amazing. It worked. Like we spent so much time in yeah. the days leading up to the launch, coming up with backup plans of like how we could personally fund this if it didn't work because we have an obligation to our composers and you know um okay if if people don't show up uh we can do an email blast here and a, mm -hmm. a, a christmas campaign and a this and that and people were just as excited as we were and it's yes a heartwarming feeling <laughs> to just have this dream come true and have all of you be a part of it with us. It makes the $350 worth it. You should put in the song, we lost. No. Here comes another request. <laughs> so anyway. you all wrong. Thank you for joining the consortium. And if you haven't yet, if this is the first time you've heard of it and you want to join, you are welcome to do so. Go to doublereaddish.com slash consortium. All are welcome. We have it all. We have our composers. We have our pricing models. Everything is up on the website. Um, and, you know, while you're over there, you can go ahead and buy a T-shirt or a sticker or a hoodie and just show off that double read dish love. Yes, I agree. <laughs> Janet Ingle loves the oboe. She has built her business on providing high-quality handmade reeds, education, and a sympathetic ear to oboists across the country. When you order from Janet Ingle Reeds, you get prompt communication, reeds or cane handcrafted to your specifications, and cheerful, friendly customer service. All orders are mailed within one week, sometimes much faster. Single orders or monthly read subscriptions are welcome and she'll work with you to find the combination of response, resistance, stability, and flexibility that is right for you. Janet doesn't just do reads either. Look at JanetIngle.com for a selection of read cases, swabs, and tools, or for read making videos, classes, and boot camps. Podcast listeners can use the code DISH for 10% off their first order at JanetIngle.com. Ugly Duckling Oboes is dedicated to the development of young oboe players. They provide quality handmade oboe reads, private lessons, and high-quality oboe sales, rentals, and consignments. The oboes that they rent are conservatory mechanism oboes that include the left-hand F key and low B-flat key. All are maintained by oboe-specific technicians. In-person lessons are available as well as virtual lessons for students who live outside the geographic area or have transportation and scheduling challenges. They also offer online college audition coaching for high school juniors and seniors who plan to audition to be music majors. Visit UglyDucklingOboes.com for more details on how you can set up yourself for success and sign up for their newsletter. That's UglyDucklingOboes.com. We are delighted to welcome to Double Read Dish, Tim Gocklin, artist in residence of oboe at the University of Northern Colorado, founding member and oboist of the Acropolis Reed Quintet. Welcome. Thank you so much. I am so excited to be here with you all today. We love to get to know our guests by hearing about how they started on their musical journey. So what brought you to the oboe? How did you begin to play? 
I first started on the oboe after a transition from the clarinet. And I think what really spurred my my moving to the oboe was I went to I had gone to a, a military band concert with my mom and I can't remember the name of I can't remember which band it was, um, but the the military band had an oboe soloist. And afterwards, my mom told me that she really loved the oboe and that it was one of her favorite instruments. And I've always I'd always been someone who wanted to try something new and, you know, doing something that nobody else was doing. Also, Harry Potter was huge at the time. That was like the when the first movie came out. Yeah. And so, you know, we had the theme so much oboe and Harry Potter. And so I decided really hard oboe parts, <laughs> really hard oboe parts. <laughs> and, then, and then, but and then the next day, I went to my band director after that concert and asked if there was an oboe in the closet somewhere. And lo and behold, there was. So I took the oboe home. I went to go get a read, uh, and just you know, from the moment the read you know, made that first vibration. It was just like, oh, oh, this is, th- I don't know what this is, but I like it. And <laughs> it sounds cool. It sounds different. And I, I was, I had a ball. And so I played it all over the weekend. I learned the theme to Harry Potter and the rest is history. You know, I mean, that's the, it, it was just, it, I, I it, love that first vibration. The oboe is my mom's favorite instrument too. And after she hears me play, she goes, oh, you know what I love? The oboe. It's like, oh, thanks, mom. Yeah, I messaged her. <laughs> Glad I could make you proud, mom. <laughs> when I was in high school, I would practice a lot at home. And my brothers would be, would be like, hey, I heard, I heard an oboe solo on the radio the other day. And it actually, like, Turns out I like the oboe. And I was like, excuse me. <laughs> How is what I'm doing now different than what you heard on the radio? Oh, salty. <laughs> Tim, what inspired you to pursue oboe as a career? Can you talk us through your kind of oboe coming of age process? Sure. So so like I said, I started it in the sixth grade and from that moment, or I mean, you know, through, through middle school, I guess I, I knew that I was always going to be and wanted to be a musician. You know, I, I was that kid who every time I got in the car, you know, put on the radio, I would find the gr- growing up in Southern New Hampshire, we don't have very many choices for classical music stations or I guess in any state, but um, I put, I was always putting it on the, the classical station and just inundating myself with so much music. You know, even when I was in, you know, uh, middle school, maybe late elementary school, probably not elementary school, but I was going to the library and reading books on like theory and counterpoint and like things like that. So knowing I was always going to be a musician and then the oboe being a conduit for that so then um through through a lot of encouragement and also just a lot of opportunities in my middle school and high school years playing in 
the Greater Manchester uh, Youth Symphony, the Greater Boston Youth Symphony. Uh, those experiences really opened my eyes to how much I try. I knew I loved music and but I, I never knew how much I loved it until I was just having all these amazing experiences. And I remember in my sophomore year of high school, that was the first year that I got into the Greater Boston Youth Symphony program into the repertory orchestra. And so they had the repertory orchestra, which was kind of, which was the tier, I guess the middle, let's call it middle tier orchestra. And then you had the senior orchestra, which is now called Boston Youth Symphony. It was just called the, the senior orchestra back when I first started the program. But I went to a concert of, of, uh, to go see the Boston Youth Symphony or the, the senior orchestra. And the program was Mozart Clarinet Concerto played by clarinetist Liam Burke who's now a fantastic repairman and uh, freelance clarinetist in New York City and whose wife is an oboist, uh, Julia DeRosa. And um, the, it was him playing the Mozart clarinet concerto in Beethoven six. Mm. And I just remember sitting in that high school, they, they, was, they were playing in a high school auditorium, a really nice one. Um, but I remember, you know, what the sconces looked like. I remember the color of the walls. I remember the auditorium and just being so affected by the music that I was hearing on stage and watching my peers, you know, kind of put me through this experience and everybody played so well. It was just an, it was an amazing concert. And it was at that moment where I realized this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. This is, I want to inspire others the way that I feel that I'm being inspired right now in this moment. And I think I wrote, I even wrote like a college essay on this experience about, you know, what is it that you want to do? Why, why do you want to come study at, you know, X and all, all the, you know, all the college essays and things like that. It sounds like um, the aspect of music making that that affected you is, you know, it's the music, but it's also the experience of hearing the music in a community. You know, it's it's playing music with others and, you know, coming mm -hmm. out of this pandemic quarantine, it it's just so striking to think back on those like community experiences where you you're in the hall and the sound is in there with you and it's live people around you. And ugh, I just miss that so much. Yeah, no. And that, that reminds me of, so we just, the, the bands here at UNC just had their last concert and by concert, you know, I mean, just pre-recorded pre-recorded video performances and, you know, it was it was great just watching, you know, one of my one of my students had a they did the English folk song suite. And it was the you know, the first time that I had heard him play a solo in the band. And it was just it was just I, I wanted to be there in the hall so badly. And then after the concert, just to give all of them just a huge hug, telling mm -hmm. them how great they did. And and then but but at the end of the concert, you know, when you're when they're acknowledging how well everybody did. 
it was just, it was silence. And, you know, and so, you know, you're acknowledging the soloist and things like that, but it's at that moment, you got brought back to reality. Mm-hmm. And it was just, you know, that community aspect, it's so important. It's so important and integral to what we do. Yeah. Like that tangible element of yeah. just being in a room with other people. Mm-hmm. Well, and it, exactly. And it, it's like, you know, you make it, you know, we, we do this because, you know, we do it because we love it, but we do it because we love sharing our experiences and we love just, you know, a, creating an alternate reality for somebody in, in that moment, which you can do via recording, but then the recording's over and you're back and you're, you know, you're taken out of that. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't, I, that miss, you know, mysterious world that music puts you in when you're, mm-hmm. when you're just surrounded by it. And, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. So after this experience, you know you want to major in music. Can you walk us through your training and educational journey post high school? Sure. So um, so I knew that I went while I was in high school, I knew that I wanted to go to the University of Michigan. Uh, I had listened to Dr. King's recordings and you know, just, and also my, my teacher in high school had gone to Michigan. And so she kind of steered me in the direction. Um, She was a great, she was such a great resource and just a foundation for me in all aspects. I owe so much to my high school teacher, uh, Margaret Hurley. She teaches at university of New Hampshire. And, um, and so then, so no post, so I got, so getting into Michigan, um, which was just an incredible, you know, reading the letter and everything. I, you know, still remember that day. And um, what I, so I, yeah, so, so post, post high school, I went to Michigan wanting to have a career just like, just like Nancy Ambrose Kate. Um, I wanted, I loved the idea of being a soloist. I, you know, and just seeing her balance every single aspect of her life so perfectly uh, just, which I, Later on, you know, I, I appreciate and, you know, admired so much. I've always admired it. But even now in my own life, I'm just like, oh, my gosh. Yeah, how, how did she even do that? <laughs> I, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's just like, how did, how did, how, can, can, is there a manual to, <laughs> to figure out how to, She like, should I write mean, one. Yeah, step by step. <laughs> and so, um, so I went to Michigan to kind of have to, you know, I wanted that sort of career. I wanted, or, or any career that was going to um, kind of I, I make me a successful, whatever I thought success, successful was at that moment. Um, but just kind of wanting to be somewhere and be noticed, I guess. I don't know. I, I've always done really well in situations where there's a sea of, of everybody doing something really well and then kind of trying to see, okay, what can I do within myself to kind of, you know, bring me up to the next level and kind of stay there. Um, And then, you know, and then surpass that. Uh, But so, so then, uh, so then I, I guess Acropolis came onto the scene my freshman year and that, 
along with my lessons and along with everything that I learned through my ensembles, uh, because I, I learned almost just as much in my ensembles at Michigan as I did studying with uh, Nancy King. I, I learned a lot about just how to put pieces of a puzzle together and have an incredibly solid foundation in my, especially in my read making. Um, and then also kind of giving, I, I feel like I learned a lot about how to take certain liberties within a structure while at Michigan, along with just kind of getting the foundations of my embouchure and, you know, all, all, all the things that we're taught in, you know, as, as undergraduates, you know, the, your, your teacher sees things that are right, but then, you know, kind of breaks them down and builds you back up. And so, and I still, every, I still hear, you know, I still hear Dr. King's voice in my head whenever, whenever I'm, you know, kind of thinking about my embouchure and whenever I'm defining the bottom corners of my reads or just, you know, just, I, I, she's, she's with me every time I pick up the oboe and whenever I'm looking into the mirror and whenever I'm telling my own students, oh, corners forward and down, you know, work those walrus tusks. <laughs> so, so it's kind of, so it's, there's, I, I learned, I learned a lot about just a great, I just a, a great foundation of, of fundamentals from, uh, from my, from my time at Michigan and, and then just, you know, the incredible skills that I learned in, in the ensembles with regards to blending and, you know, I learned about, you know, how it's really important to respect the time of the people that you're working with. Because uh, that's one thing that our direct, that, you know, the band director, Michael Haithcock, holds very, very dear to him. Um, is that, you know, he, he, val he would always say, and it still always does the, you know, he values the time and the talent of his students. And that none of that is going to be wasted. So that's kind of how we've grown in, you know, how to do certain things with, with Acropolis, uh, kind of modeled things there as well. And I guess another thing that I just learned in Michigan uh, was I, about myself, I learned that I'm someone who likes doing a lot of different things and playing in a bunch of different ensembles. Uh, you know, I was, I was definitely a yes man when I was at Michigan, you know, you want to play Can you play in my recital? Yes. Can you do this? Yes. Can you, you know, and anything, because I like I like challenging myself with a variety of different repertoire and playing the, with, with a bunch of different people. And I just liked, I, I enjoy being around people, uh, especially when it's involved in music making. So I learned how to, how to balance my schedule uh, also a little bit. And I remember there was this one time where my woodwind quintet we accidentally double booked something. We were, we had said yes to playing at a, a gig for, for a friend of ours in Holland, Michigan. And at the same time, there was also something that 
our coach, who at the time was Jeff Lyman, uh, set up for us, which we didn't realize was on the same day. And I'll always remember this, where afterwards he, he called us all into his office and he had five chairs lined up in front of his desk. And he was just, he, you know, he was just like, have a seat. And we were just like, oh no, oh no, what's going to happen? We're in trouble. But we learned a very valuable lesson of <laughs> manage. <laughs> yeah, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> and then he, what, beat you? Uh, yeah. you? <laughs> we got a very stern talking to. <laughs> oh, I hate those. <laughs> <laughs> but we learned our lesson. <laughs> yeah. I had one of those too. I remember my doctorate uh, with Benjamin. Um, but you mentioned that this, it was at this time during your freshman year that Acropolis was formed. We've all had those chamber groups that you get assigned, you play in for a semester. We've all coached those groups, play, never play again. And this ensemble has obviously had real staying power and impact talk to us about forming acropolis wins and knowing that it was something to invest in and a relationship that you all wanted to pursue long term sure so so acropolis we so we we started i i guess the inception of acropolis was january 2009 um so second semester of my freshman year and it was actually started by uh, someone who is no longer in the group. <laughs> um, and so, so it, it was started by the saxophonist Dan Goff, who saw Cal the Califax Reed Quintet play in New York. I believe it was New York. Um, and he came back to Michigan, you know, during, I think, December or something. And wanted to he he really wanted to form a reed quintet because it was you know he was you know wanting something different than a sax quartet and also just the repertoire and the colors that he heard was just amazing so he you know having gone to the orchestra concerts saw carrie playing principal clarinet on one of the pieces and he had also known carrie from the symphony band and so also in the orchestra Sitting next to Carrie was Ryan Reynolds on bassoon. And Andrew Kepi was sitting next to her playing, I think he was still playing clarinet, but, uh, or because he's our bass clarinetist. But, um, but yeah, so it was the three of them in orchestra, also in the symphony band. And then I was friends with Carrie. And I hadn't really known Andrew, but I was also friends with Ryan. Uh, Ryan and I were the same year and actually in, I believe it was summer 2007, we were both at the Interlochen Arts Camp mm. and we got assigned to a quintet together at that, that summer. And I remember us having a conversation being like, dude, wouldn't it be so cool if we both ended up at Michigan? Cause then we could just play together and do pretty much whatever we wanted. And then, you know, I guess fast forward a year later, we were at Michigan and then got placed into a quintet. Um, so, so that, so it was just, you know, as soon as I heard that Ryan was going to be in it, I was like, oh, of course I'll play in this. This sounds like a great group. I know Carrie, because we all knew, again, we all knew each other from symphony band. So it came together 
based off of, you know, Dan seeing Carrie, Andrew and Ryan playing the orchestra. And then also through knowing me, I got roped into it. So that's how the quintet essentially formed. And I think, you know, it was very, I guess, you know, luck. I mean, the, we formed kind of out of, out of luck and friendship. Um, you know, we were, we all pretty much got together or got, got along together, um, got along well. And then after, so, so then after that year, Dan ended up winning a job in the army field band, but we still wanted to play together. And um, I think how it happened was that come, cha- come uh, uh, the beginning of the fall semester, you know, that we had, we had, we had had some experiences with some other saxophonists uh, trying to see if there was a fit um, and then, you know, but just for some, for one reason or another, just the, the fit didn't quite work out. And then, and then, yeah, so then the fall semester came around and Matt was looking for a chamber group to play with. And because his, his sax quartet, something had happened with his sax quartet, I think. So, so we asked him to join the Reed Quintet and little did we know that it would be what it is today. And, you know, I think, I don't think we would have been able to get to where we are now without any one of the five of us, just because the chemistry is so, you know, I think what keeps the chamber group going is, you know, you have to have that, that success and stuff from, from the beginning, but you also have to have chemistry. So then, so then we have, so now where we are the fully formed Acropolis, we have, you know, and so fall of 2009, the members that are there are the members that have been there since. Um, so we, we play together, get coached by, have some amazing experiences with Jeff Lyman and uh, Chad Burrow. They were extremely instrumental in, in just kind of in our, in the early stages of Acropolis. They helped us out so much with regards to how do we fit these five instruments together? Because, you know, in, in a wooden quintet, we have, it's, it's hard to fit together, you know, the instruments of a wooden quintet, but we have 250 years of history mm-hmm. with the wooden quintet. Mm-hmm. And with the reed quintet, we have, uh, at that time, we had 30 years of history with right. the reed quintet. So there is not really a precedented, well, how does a saxophone fit in with a reed quintet? How does an oboe blend with a bass clarinet? And uh, which is, it, yeah, it's, it, that's hard. Uh, <laughs> the the that, oval, that, the o- impossible. Yeah, the oval, There we have. There was a piece that uh, Rob Deemer wrote, a fantastic piece called Gallimaufry, that has a pretty extensive duo between oboe and bass clarinet, and it was just like oh, I've never experienced this before. This is an interesting <laughs> color combination, <laughs> but without those previous years of of just like intense rehearsing together, because in 2010, that's when we got encouraged to enter competitions, mm-hmm. and so the first competition we entered was the Fishoff competition, and they probably let us in because they were like, "Huh, 
they can play kind of well. And we've never heard a reed quintet before. <laughs> so sure, why not? If you had been a string quartet, on the other hand. <laughs> on the other, right. They were like, oh, well, we've got like 25 other string quartets that are better. <laughs> so <laughs> better luck next year. <laughs> no, I'm sure that's not true. <laughs> but but, uh, but no, we were, um, so we, we entered, we got, we did fish off that first year made it past the quarterfinal round, which we were like, oh my God, this is so exciting. And then, <laughs> um, and then we got to the semifinals and I think probably fell on our face because we were also playing, we played the, yeah, the repertoire we played was a reed quintet version of the Ligeti Six, ba- uh, yeah, the Ligeti Bagatelles, which was an instrumentation of our own making so instead of the French horn, we gave it to the Bassett horn, which I found out was an F that year. And then <laughs> instead of the uh, flute part, we were like, okay, well, we have a soprano saxophone, which is kind of the same thing. So... <laughs> don't tell uh, the flutes. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> they don't listen to this podcast, right? <laughs> <laughs> so so we gave the so the saxophone the soprano saxophone played the flute and piccolo part and we and that became the version of Ligeti that I knew for for as as a very long time and then I heard the a wooden quintet play and I was like huh this doesn't sound right <laughs> which is like wait a minute that's <laughs> back up so but so so then that year we also competed in the Plowman Chamber Music Competition, and we're playing a, uh, a, a tombo. We were playing yeah. So we were playing Ligeti Ligeti Bagatelles, tombo, the sixth movement based off of the piano suite, and then uh, Debussy Children's Corner. Essentially, we were playing a repertoire that was not originally written for the Reed Quintet mm-hmm. and a repertoire that we got recommended, or I think we, we heard recordings of it. We heard Califax's recordings and thought, okay, wow, this sounds amazing. Uh, so let's, let's give it our best shot. Um, and then after that year, I think we decided that if we were going to get anywhere in competitions, we had to start thinking about commissioning our own repertoire and doing original things. And so we ended up uh, contacting some composers from, from U of M and then, you know, ended up paying them via, you know, it, it was, payment was, was cheap at that point. So, you know, you give somebody a six pack and they're like, oh, okay, great. Yeah, I'll write you a piece. College. And um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, college. <laughs> But, but we got, we got some really great pieces. Uh, They got some really great recordings. Uh, One of those pieces is a piece called Fun, 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 Fun. And based off of Rebecca Black's, um, oh my gosh, what's that? Friday, based off of, yeah. Because it's all about, you like, you have the, you have a backseat fun, which is in the car. And I think on, in Friday, there's like, they're in the car. Uh-huh. Or something that I actually never watched that music video out of principle, okay. but <laughs> it's a big earworm for me. Uh huh. <laughs> and so, so that, and then the last moon of that piece is a really fun uh, 
one called Techno Fun. And so, you know, there's just a lot of dance like elements in there that we really latched onto and that we really identified with. And then there was some other repertoire that wasn't as programmatic that we still really identified with. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we also took some original repertoire recommendations from Califax and through, through kind of finding our identity in that way, took that music to competitions in 2011. And so I guess fast forwarding to, you know, to that, we ended up doing much better uh, that year. That's the year that we ended up winning the MTNA competition, the plowman competition and we ended up getting the silver medal at fish off that year. Mm-hmm. And so we were like, okay, uh, this we've kind of, okay. So, you know, key to success is play original repertoire for, for us and play a Baroque piece that's obscure enough to sound like it's original. Cause we had played a, a remote harpsichord suite. Um, and that's where we found out that the, combination of English horn and soprano saxophone worked out really well mm-hmm. um so so but so 2011 though was an interesting year for me because that was the year before I was going to be preparing for grad school auditions mm-hmm. and you know I I remember always thinking you know I hope you know I hope that that what I'm doing is, is seen as, you know, okay in the eyes of, of Dr. King with Reef Quintet. It's not originally what I had kind of set out to do, um, but it's something that seems to be working. And she was always so incredibly supportive. Um, but there were times where I was practicing more music for the Reef Quintet than I was for my lessons. Uh, so that's, and so that's where I was thinking to myself, okay, well, if I'm really, if I really am going to get serious about the oboe, I have to, you know, I have to choose, I have to choose either Acropolis or I have to choose, you know, pursuing a really great audition for grad school, mm-hmm. or at least at the time, that's what I thought. And so for a period of two weeks, I think this was before it was either in between competitions or after competitions. I think I, you know, that's when I, I told everybody that I was, you know, I was like, guys, I really need to focus on my grad school auditions for next year. Uh, I, I don't think I have enough time or, can, you know, I, I don't think I have the time to be in both Acropolis and prepare for these auditions. Uh, this is going to be my last year with Acropolis. And that was, yes, late spring semester of 2011. And for two weeks, I had you know, made up my mind to not be in the quintet. And then after thinking about it more, I realized that it was gonna be just as uncomfortable without the quintet as I thought it was gonna be with them. So I figured, you know, might as well, might as well live with the uncomfortability of having both worlds as opposed mm-hmm. to just you know, one of them, Mm -hmm. because like I was talking about before with the chemistry, the chemistry was just so powerful. um, And the music making was so good. And I mean, the fact that we were doing something that nobody else was doing, Mm -hmm. you know, there were two other, maybe two other reed quintets in the country and, you know, barely any that we knew of around the world. 
So it was a very new thing that we found ourselves becoming successful in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I realized that this was something that was really special and that, you know, might as well try to keep it, keep it going. So um, I kept up, you know, and I've never looked back from that moment. And well, there always have been cases of, you know, and this is now post post school uh, in general. And even while I was in school, because when I was in grad school, you know, it's very much a professional, you know, you're paid essentially to be a student. And there was that level of thing. There was, yeah, there was just that layer that hadn't been there before. And so the, you know, you have to do what your school is paying you to do, but also you have this professional career that's happening uh, and how to manage that dynamic. Cause there were, that I had a quintet at Yale that was, you know, full of great players. And, you know, we had, we had a good chemistry and we played really well together. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, I, it was just kind of like a, well, guys, you know, I have, I ha- I have this other group too, that's been doing really well. And, you know, they, you know, in terms of priorities, they kind of, you know, they kind of hit the top of my priority list. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but it was, it was always still a balance of, okay, how do I make, how do I make everybody happy mm. while also making Tim happy? How do I make Tim and everybody else? Um, Tell us the secret. <laughs> I'll, let you, I'll let you know. <laughs> but I mean, and I, I think, the and through through another one of my classes when I was at Yale, the, it was led by a woman named Astrid Baumgartner, who she led the career strategies uh, office and still does. And I left her class thinking about values the way I've never really thought about my values. And just also, I just left that class thinking, you know, I can do anything that I want to because this amazing woman has kind of laid out a plan and just shown so much incredible enthusiasm for everybody in that class mm-hmm. to then go out and do whatever it is they want. So when I was thinking about balancing my, you know, my career as a performer, as a student, and yeah, I wasn't really teaching all that much at that point. So it was just kind of performer with Acropolis and then student. Um, but it made it very, it made it very, she painted a very real picture or helped me paint a very realistic picture for myself. Well, it brings up, I think, uh, a relevant question, which is now that you're in the teacher role, how do you um, mentor your students to kind of keep that open mind about what their careers could look like? And maybe it could start in their undergraduate degree, you know, maybe they could find their, their match made in heaven, uh, (laughs) chamber music group as freshmen. And, you know, how do you nurture those relationships, um, as a young person, because we all know that we're not fully formed humans yet then, (laughs) (laughs) even though we think we are. So I would love to hear about your pedagogy on on that aspect and how you advise and mentor your students to pursue these really creative and interesting avenues that could be available to them. Sure. 
So I, what I've always done since I've gotten to UNC and the way that I've got, I've, I've done a lot of kind of introductory to different, um, to just other career paths outside of teaching and outside of playing in an orchestra and try and, you know, I, I always try to showcase as many different careers within the arts as possible to, you know, show them, yes, you can, you know, you, you can and should have multiple interests um, and trying to figure out, okay, how do all these relate to each other? How can I kind of be using these as a tool you know, I enjoy doing all these things. I'm good at this skill. I'm really good at this skill. I'm a people person. I'm not a people person, but I still really like to be part of a team. Um, just kind of trying to expose them to as many different people and as many, you know, whether it be Zoom interviews, things like that, or, or just showing them videos and introducing them to people who I admire, who's you know, careers I admire who aren't necessarily doing the playing in an orchestra and, and, you know, teaching at a university and, you know, the, yeah. what, what we think of when we think of a musical career, I'm trying to yeah. always get them to open up their, or, or yeah, just introduce them to what a music career is and how it's not necessarily a uh, and how it's not black and white. <laughs> yeah, we can bust that binary of of uh, it's this or it's that, and there's no room for anything else. Exactly. Yeah. And I've this year, this semester, I had um, I had them do. I had my students do two sets of interviews, both want both centering around uh, creativity and just kind of how how certain people have dealt with the pandemic um but also what things you know what what you know what other aspects people are doing or what what other things people are doing outside of performing uh someone interviewed sherry seiler which was great love her but but no and one of them one of them interviewed um astrid baumgardner because I had talked about her and just kind of get done a little bit of a presentation on like career and career management and things like that. And so they wanted to interview Astrid just because she's a very positive person as well and positive and powerful. Hmm. Uh, and so just trying to show, show them through those, through those, through meeting different people, how vast our, our, our possibilities are with being a musician. Love that. And then there are also, a, there's a podcast that I love called the Bulletproof Musician that I've had them listen to a lot of different interviews on that as well. Just to be, you know, one of them was a, a improvisatory, there was a violinist who, imp who was, did a lot of improvising and, you know, taught improvisation and, you know, had them listen to that to not only exp expand their minds on, uh, you know, different careers, but also improvising. And we had a class on improvising. And, you know, one of my students just thought, oh, I didn't know I could improvise. 
it's not as scary or as hard as I thought. And so, you know, it's my hope that they continue on down that line and who knows what that might lead into. Yeah. But just, and you don't have to be instantly good at something. Exactly. You, know, you can try stuff. Exactly. And I think the, this was something that I saw on Claire Brazo's Instagram. Uh, it was probably like last month or something. And I thought it was brilliant. It was, it was like the first, you know, you have to, what, what was it? The, the first step to being kind of good at something is being really bad at something or, mm-hmm. or something, something along those words. And I was just like, this is, that's brilliant. Because you never start off really good at anything, mm-hmm. but you just got to keep on doing. Mm-hmm. When we had Monica Ellis on the podcast, she spoke about how annually uh, Imani will get together and kind of do uh, annual planning and long-term projections. And that that was a really important part of um, them as a chamber group continuing to grow and um for her an integral part of the kind of autonomous nature, the sovereign nature of charting a a chamber music career. Um, How does Acropolis plan now that you're in this professional realm? um, How do you all go about that kind of professional development and cultivating your long term plans, the next steps in your creativity, all that type of stuff? How does your group approach that? So we, we approach it in a similar way. And we have certain times throughout the year where all of us get together and we do these, you know, at least one or two different retreats. Um, so I guess I'll speak pre-pandemic uh, because not that things have changed too much, but um, we would, we'll get together between Christmas and New Year's. And, or that's when we used to, you know, people's lives are changing. So I think we're thinking about a different time, but either in the summer or between Christmas and New Year's, we'll all just get together. Uh, What we used to do was go up to a a hunting cabin in Northern Michigan, because Ryan's grandparents had just a a cabin that they used um, and owned. So we would go there, rent the cabin, stay there for a couple days and that's where we would get the bulk of our rehearsing done. Because even when, when I was in school, uh, Ryan was also in school. He was doing his doctorate at Florida State. And so, you know, while having a, you know, a busy tour schedule, while both of us were still in school, and then even, you know, afterwards when I was trying to freelance at the same time, um, there wasn't much time for us to kind of chunk out moments for us to learn new pieces it was always like okay what can we what do we need to brush up on in the repertoire that we have to play in a concert tomorrow that we haven't played in like a month and a half right so so our retreats we use them to learn new repertoire um, talk about composers that we want to commission um and then kind of, you know, check in with those composers and kind of work. That's, those are our opportunities to workshop pieces um, to see what's working, what's not working. Mm-hmm. And we also will, all, during those times, we'll also have a year in review sort of conversation like where everybody shares their thoughts on, you know, the whatever, whatever topic we're discussing. And our rule, we have 
you know, if our, our rule is that we cannot, everybody has to say their piece and that, you know, no one is allowed to interrupt anybody else. Like, you know, everybody is going to be heard and, you know, otherwise, otherwise, you know, we don't want anybody to feel that their opinions are invalid or, or anything like that. You know, we're always very aware of making sure everybody is, is uh, heard. So, so that's, so I, yeah, we, we have, have those yearly meetings uh, which happen, I guess maybe once, either once a year, or every other, or, or, you know, a couple times a year to have those serious, more serious talks. Tim, what advice would you give to a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours? So having, having an open mind is one. And then there are four, four things that I've taken with me throughout, throughout my career that I would tell, that I would tell somebody else as well. And so one of them, the first one is just be, be open-minded, be a kind person. Uh, that reminds me of a studio class. My first studio class at Yale with Steve Taylor was he wrote the word empathy on the board and said, this is the most valuable lesson that I can teach you. Because if you are not somebody who somebody wants to work with, then you are putting yourself at one of the most, at one of the bigger disadvantages um, in life. So just be, be a kind person, be respectful. You know, everything that we've, that we're taught when we're little, um, and then be love, love what you do. Just, you know, be curious about a new experiences and then just work, work really hard. Everything that the, you know, we're taught long tones and, you know, knowing that it's, that we are going to fail and that that's absolutely expected and okay because there's no success without failure. So, Ooh, I love that. <laughs> Tim, this was wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing your brilliance and your energy and your thoughts with us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. We know you loved spending time with us and Tim Gocklin. Thank you so much for joining us. The next episode will feature an interview with amazing Brazilian bassoonist Fabio Curi. Jackie, where can you, where can our listeners see we switched it up and now we have no idea how to follow us on social media, rate and subscribe, give the tagline. Okay. Jackie, let's end this nerd parade. Go get a tattoo, learn the Berio Sequenza, paint your cabinets and make reads. And make reads. <laughs>